You're listening to Surplus Bulbs, a radio show by Ed Hicks, written and recorded in Hackney. Episode 2, the dating episode. So everyone has to drink far too much. And now here Tom is. And at a loss of anything productive to do, Tom is thinking about a girl that loves him. She is tall and slender. She has billboard hair. Her summer smile cuts through the smog and grease. And she is beautiful enough to work at the perfume counter. And she loves him. Only him. But she has no job. She has no job and no house. She also has no arms or skin and no hair because she does not in fact exist. It is one of those times in between relationships. The longest so far. A very long time actually, but that's not embarrassing with enumeration. Say only that it has been a while. Now Tom is drunk and imagines that whoever this perfect creature might be, she is without doubt waiting somewhere out there in the night for him and only him. And one day, she will come, and the world will glow, and she will fill up the space. She will take Tom's broken bones and bleeding gums. She will find the bits of him that fell off on the way, and his wallet, and his tickets. Ah, if she existed. Ah, which she doesn't. Tom stares at the bus window with the rain, and the shit, and the cars, and the bins and the mud, and the pollution, and the AIDS and the murders, and hunkers back down into his own head. He sees himself with this meta-woman. Now, seeing as she does not exist, Tom begins a process where, in his half-cut head, he is painstakingly photoshopping the idea of her onto the mental photos he already has of girls that do actually exist. Girls that he's known in whatever capacity. The one that got away, the friend zoner, the one that left, the one that stayed and is annoyingly everywhere. Hot stuff work colleagues, that Arab chick that lives down the hallway, and even the current girlfriends of some of his closest friends. Especially Jake's girlfriend who was there tonight. 
you can't remember her name, but she is so fit. And he's already jerked off about three or four times just looking at the public profile pictures on the internet. Which, he muses, is pretty impressive these days. For fully clothed photos. The match of these real women and the fantasy love is imprecise. And the overlay is clumsy, but he holds them aloft and studies them. certainly do. Tom is stripping back these real-life women of their actual personalities and nature and replacing them with a clumsy made cartoon image of his biggest fan. In all fairness to him, he does briefly take time to reflect for a moment that this is probably somewhat of an unhealthy activity. Not the kind of thing you tell people. quickly realises, with great relief, that he is too drunk to actually care, charges on. Making acolytes of these women is very pleasing to think about. All these imperfect humans who do not love him suddenly transformed into their rightful state, wherein, to them, Tom is the most wonderful thing in the world. And really, why not? Doing pretty good for 47, actually. Even with the gut and the shitty hairline and the fungal stuff. And the debts. Christ, the debts. Let's forget about those. So, taking these altered photos in his wobbly, balding head, he multiplies them many times over. Now there's a whole platoon of them. All able-bodied, willing, and in the sunshine of their love for him. They have to go somewhere, so now they are standing in the street, outside the window of his house. There's no traffic, so they can do as they please. And you can just look out the bedroom window, and there they all are. Down in the street. Look at them all. They really are delightful. Ding, he makes it a bright summer's day and each one of them is wearing the most revealing outfit he's ever known them to wear. And as for the ones whose top sexy outfit he can't remember, he simply makes one up, which is outrageously slutty. In Tom's mind now, even as the old bus forges through the snarling night, in his head, he watches them calmly from his bedroom window. chatting in the way the girls do with that slight arm touch and their little bend at the waist and they laugh, light and graceful. They are showing each other photos of Tom on their phones and they do other things that Tom assumes women do en masse. Like, fuck, I don't know, um, comb each other's hair, um, whatever. Aren't attractive women great, he thinks to himself. I like them. These ones especially, yeah, they're really good. Very, very good. Good doing the thing down there. And after a while, he decides to go out and see them. But the problem is that when he opens the front door, they crowd round and all talk at once, talking over each other. 
now he doesn't know what to do. He tries to say a few words, but they're all talking over him too. I mean, sure, it's all kind of flirtatious stuff, saying how much they admire him, peppering him with compliments, and they all flick their hair in the way that means that they're really into you and probably up for anything. But there is around 200 of them, which is actually quite a lot. Quite a lot of women. One man. Tom is starting to feel very overwhelmed now and outnumbered. It's not very nice. So he closes the front door and goes inside, back to his room on the first floor, and he watches them. The women are becoming listless, kicking at the curb or pacing back and forth, all filled with pent-up feline energies. They shout stuff up to him, but he cannot hear the words and wonders why this is. Make no mistake, they are all utterly gorgeous. But really, also getting quite angry now. And a few small-scale fights kick off. The fights are not broken up, and they result in one of the women being actually quite badly beaten. Usually with a brick or something. It is getting pretty raw out there. And as time goes by, they get more enraged. And with no small degree of mounting horror, he realises this situation is beginning to seem quite like a siege. Tom has begun to be quite scared and resents himself for this fear. Down in the street they scream and shout now, demanding him to come down and see them. Tom will absolutely not do that. But how long can this last? He will at some point need to go and get food. Is there any way he can escape across the rooftops? But then how would he get back in? It's all well and good buying a month's worth of Tesco finest ravioli. But if he can't cook that shit, I mean, where are you? He can't abandon his house. Sure, it's just a renter, but there's all this stuff there. Far more than he could get in a suitcase. Plus, if they see him escaping, they'll chase after him. And there's no way he can outrun them. Not with the luggage and the state of his knees. All this time, they hammer on the door. Their fists are bloody. Their eyes have gone black. They scream and scream. Banshee-like. And now it is night, and Tom has not left the house. Tom knows deep down that when they finally break down the door, these women that are no longer women will get him. They will drag him outside and with tooth and claw, they will cut deep into his flesh. They will divide him up equally, all quivering bloodied lumps. And when each has their own peace, theirs alone to have and to hold. After this carnage, there will be asylum. It will be the one single moment of calm in all this. A perfect silence. In reverence, something close to holy 
It shall be done on the makeshift altar they have constructed outside, out of wheelie bins, surrounded by burning torches. They will cut Tom's throat and carve him up, and all will take their fill, and it will be perfect, a process reaching its ouroboric conclusion. Then, at last, he and they will be united, body and soul. With this, Tom feels a strange exhilaration, mixed with horror. Then opening his eyes, he realizes he's missed the bus stop. We'll have to take 15 minutes to walk back the way he came. Oh, for fuck's sake, shouts Tom. Less of that, says an old man in the seat behind him. And Tom apologizes and goes and waits by the exit. Who knows? 
Who knows, your canal boat could be a palace for someone like me. So I said, yeah. So me and Seth and Barry, we went back to a canal boat, didn't we? And it was, it was big and green and long and sitting there, docked up in Hackney, as you do, as you do. But I didn't realise what she wanted from me. We go into her canal boat, we climb down the steps, you know. And there you are, the kind of, feels like a subterranean level, but you're on water. And uh, it's very cosy, very lovely. Warmer than you would expect, to be honest. And she says, she says, are you scared of the water? That's a peculiar question to ask a fella. And I say, no, I'm not scared of water. She says, I want you to do something for me. And I say, all right, what do you want me to do then? Thinking, this is some labyrinthine way to get to some erotic, situation which frankly I'm totally up for and she says I've got a problem you see Bruce because that is my name and I say what's your problem and she says well at the back of my boat there's a flap and when I open that flap there's a great big inky black abyss and in that water is my propeller and around that propeller there is something wrapped and I don't know what it is and I want you Bruce to put your hand down there into my boat's flap and extract what it is that is impeding my propeller. And I said, "Why? I can do that. She takes me down to the back of the boat and she says, that's the flap. And I look at the flap and I open it up and I look down into the water. I can't really see anything, to be honest. And I'll say, have you got a torch? And she says, of course I've got a torch. And she hands me her torch. And I shine my torch down. And that's when I see it. I was expecting maybe some plastic bags, like, you know, some Tesco bags. You know, Truth said it could have even been just some fucking seaweed or weeds or reeds or nettles or whatever. But it wasn't. It was something wholly unnatural. I looked at it. I felt like it was looking back at me. It was 
conscious, willing. He was holding onto her propeller because he didn't want her to move. And not only did he not want her to move, he didn't want me to be there. It was like all the energy of every jealous ex-lover all in one place. All combined, all gripping that propeller. And I looked at it and I could not compete with all of that guilty male impurity that was holding on and saying, you can't go. And if you stay, I will destroy you. And I decided right there and then, fuck it, it's not worth it. And I pulled my arm out of the water and I looked at old Sif there and I said, I've got to be somewhere. Sorry, love. See you later, yeah? And I did one. I left. And I didn't look back, to be honest. And you know, I do think about Sif wherever she might be. I'm looking for me, for an uncomplicated woman. So, I'm gonna focus on that. I think I'm gonna try some dating apps. Do you know any good ones? The Archivist. Five lots of birthday cards in the desk drawer. Five company Christmas cards. And five year-long planners left empty wedged down the back. Some people came, some went. The office went on. The steadfast motion certainly beat fireworks or cramming for the review board. This place was okay. No fast-cut dervishing nor glacial gloom, just a steady plod, plod, plod. And the seasons rotated. But the work was good, he knew what he was doing. Get him on the end of that phone and he'd sell you the thing, no problem. 
The thing changed from time to time, but eventually it was what the person wanted. You just helped them remember that. It wasn't a battle, just a gradual closing of the gap. As soon as they realized what kind of person they would be, if they owned the thing, well then you had them. Who wouldn't buy the very best version of themselves, cheap at half the price? But that fizz, the spark that kept it going, flatlined when the receiver went back into the cradle. And then he was the same. Okay, but the same. Over pints of mild one eve, Terry told him he looked lonely. Do you mean to say there are people who aren't? He said. They laughed to take the edge off. Then Terry told him about these new apps, kind you meet women on. Or men, if that's your thing. No judgment here, mate. Fuck off, Terry. Then he lit a fag. Actually, Terry, carry on. How do they work? And Terry told him. And it began. The game was a simple yes or no with friendly pastel buttons. Do you like them? Yes. Okay. Do you like them? Nah. Okay. It was Fisher-Price level functionality in a one-armed bandit. The odds certainly seemed stacked in your favour. And he liked the superficiality, really. Swipe for yes, swipe for no. Bi-directional, multiple answer questions, pure ones and zeros. None of all that troubling maybes that made up most of the territory in the real. Gazing into that little screen, a tiny flower of hope blossomed sickly pink deep within his ape brain. Swipe and win. And it worked. You lay down your goods at the market and someone's gonna buy. As long as you know what tier you operate in, the matches will turn up. And in they came. But as the yes profiles piled up, it was the similarities that stood out the most. Not the plasticized airbrushing of billboards or fake tan of TV, but Christ people had poor imaginations. It was depressing how identical their ideas of desirable were, and that which would impress became obvious. There was an equation, something easily learnt. He started talking, and it was easy. It was a cell. You opened up, kept the momentum, granted service. What do they want? Why, a dance partner? To shuffle over biographies and twirl through anecdotes, talk shop, skirt round subjects, share songs, make wild claims. Everyone has one or two good stories, so he made notes. Maybe there was some drop-off, ones that started good, fizzled but two became five became eight and so on it was okay no fast cut fireworks just a steady plod obviously there's a genetic hierarchy of aesthetics people are interested in up or across this schema never down you don't need to be a Darwinist to get the lay of the land but attraction is what it is and there's always back doors to levels out of your reach chuck in, give it a punt because there was no way he was actually going to meet these people but the talking was good with the temporal mechanics of communication no longer applying on the apps taking an entire hour to get your next response tight 
only shows you're not desperate. Mm, the illusion of scarcity, very nice. He was honing down rapport to a fine craft, and when he ran dry, on went the magpie coat and into town, there to jot down radio quips, melding into half-heard bus-stop phrases, beardy yawls of hip tweeters, and the top-gear pith of white-collar spivs. He typed them up and copied and pasted. Franken-bants. Once a set piece was formalised, you could use it on anyone. Hey, did I ever tell you about... Dot, dot, dot. They wanted attention. He just helped them remember that. It wasn't a battle, just a gradual closing of the gap. There were intro texts, subject propositions, responses, all filed and categorised, ready for delivery in lunch breaks or on the tube home. A system developed, and it worked. It was a shock the first time he received the photos. A close-up of breasts in a white bra. He had been taken at arm's length in a public bathroom. He stared at them, but there was no sex in it. Far from the promissory tokens, the tits said nothing, just tits. These are tits, he mumbled. Yeah. Yep, yeah, right. But it was a new form of capital in the system, so another file another subheading, and it continued. Next, for the boys. I mean, why not? Armed with a clutch of pilfered photos, blondes, brunettes, redheads, he opened a score of lady profiles and waded out into the murky waters of masculine desire. This was even easier, and it was okay too. One hardly need Frankenstein previous conversations as mere rudimentary dialogue sufficed. A few implications here, a smatter of coquettishness there, and always the lead. Tell me more. Hardly even roleplay, really. You applied the system, and it yielded results. And so came the boys' pictures, pinging in the inbox, bing, bing, bing. Give them a reason and they went wild. It was greasy jackpots ahoy. And the content? Post-shower pouts down to close-up stubble rash on oily abs. Erections jumped and twitched in Calvin Klein mesh. Upshot cocks, like great angry blue-veined totem poles dwarfing their owners in skewed perspective, as if photobombed by their own anatomy. So now, he could send pictures back to the girls, and the circle was complete. Take one and pass it on. Because really, everyone got there eventually. The need to expose themselves, to become an object. Fifteen seconds of amateur porno fame and an audience of one. On reflection, it made perfect sense. For within the life of the single adult, the main interaction with sexuality came through internet porn. It was all they knew, but now it was bi-directional. Monkey see, monkey do. No matter how awkward or pathetic it came across, there was a kind of honesty to it. The videos seemed even more self-serving, meaty puppets jiggling at uncomfortable angles. It was hardly even sport anymore at this point. Everyone seemed itching to disrobe. They dared themselves to go further, and on they went. A tracking shot of sleek belly to black thong. A bear of a man flexing in the mirror. 
Next, blurry finger sucking against a blue curtain. A steamed window wipes clean to reveal perfect olive skin. Nipples are twirled close up. Painted nails fumble inside the cash register of their pants. And a green sink is plastered with a gob of goo. As off camera, a groaning sigh rattles the internal mic. At some point in the ongoing conversations, his reticence to meet in the flesh became overwhelmingly obvious, and the subject had to be deleted, unmatched or blocked. But there were others, there were always others, to welcome, encourage, to console, to offer a stage upon which to act out their fantasy, wanking in the mirror, finger in their anus, Desperately trying to maintain a hard-on as you write, direct, and act in your own micro-movie. So each file was named, and dated, and stored, according to procedure. He rarely reviewed those, the ones that had made their way through administration. This whispering collection, like illustrations in a book he was writing. They moved and writhed, but came from an altogether different reality. Into the archive they went and remained, and when the screen went dead, he forgot about them. And the world returned and carried on, unchanged. been listening to Surplus Bulbs, written and produced by Ad Hicks, with music by Ad Hicks, featuring the voice of Steve Chatterton, additional text by Steve Chatterton. If you wish to support this show, follow the links in the text to our Big Cartel shop, where you can find scenes, prints, original art, paraphernalia. Good night.